It's common today for you to hear gospel presentations given here and there that do not call sinners to repentance. They try to convince people of the benefits of accepting Christ, but they don't call people to renounce their sin specifically. And this prompts the question, can someone truly be saved if they never walk through the door of repentance? Can Christ be embraced if sin is never repulsed? Our passage today that we will be studying will help us answer these questions. And so I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 3. The Gospel of Luke chapter 3. Luke 3 begins a new section in the Gospel of Luke. The first two chapters were Luke's intro, really, to Jesus, and it was an intro that provided uh, the narrative about how Jesus and his forerunner, John, uh, came to be, how their births were announced and their births came about, and all the events surrounding the two of them. But what was clear in those first two chapters, as he, Luke describes John and Jesus is that Jesus is superior. That even though John is special, Jesus is more special. And that emphasis will continue into this chapter. We're going to see a lot of John the Baptist's ministry here in this chapter. But what's going to be clear is that John plays second fiddle. That John is not the one who's in the spotlight. He is merely there to shine the light upon his relative, Jesus. And so John in his preaching and Luke in his writing don't want us to miss the central figure of the gospel, and that is Jesus. And so let's see that as we read the first part of Luke chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconius, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Here in these verses, as we examine the ministry of John the Baptist, we will see three characteristics of biblical repentance. Three characteristics of biblical repentance. And we're going to see these characteristics so that we uh, might be moved to ask whether true repentance characterizes us. We want to know, have, have we truly repented? 
is true biblical repentance a part of our lives? And so as we see these characteristics of repentance in John's ministry, they'll be a mirror for us to look into our own lives. Now, these three characteristics we'll be looking at this week and next. And this week, we'll simply be looking at the first one. And that is, number one, the first characteristic of biblical repentance that we see in these verses is that repentance is required for divine forgiveness. Repentance is required for divine forgiveness. In order for divine forgiveness to be granted, for us to receive that, repentance is required. Now, we see here, as we've just read, that John the Baptist came proclaiming a message. He came preaching. He was a preacher. And he declared this message to first century Israel. And it his message exploded on the scene with power and with conviction. It was shocking to this nation because Israel saw themselves as already in secure standing with God. They saw that they were the chosen people of God. Therefore, there was nothing to be worried about. There was nothing to be worried about spiritually. They were worried about Rome, worried about those who were oppressing them, but they weren't worried about their spiritual condition because really on the face of the earth, they were the ones that held the highest standard, the highest place. And so it's into this nation that John was sent. The end of verse 2 tells us that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This John is the John we were introduced to in chapters 1 and chapter 2. And Luke has already recorded how John arrived by the miraculous power of God in giving a son to two aged parents. They were past the childbearing years without children, and yet God miraculously enabled them to conceive and to have a, have a child. And when he was born, chapter 1 records, there was a buzz all surrounding the hill country of Judea. People knew that God was at work because he had given this child to these aged parents. But when John came of age, chapter 1, verse 80 tells us, he went to live in the wilderness of Judea until his public appearance in Israel. He went to go live an austere lifestyle out in the Judean wilderness. This wilderness was a, des a desolate and rocky landscape with many deep ravines. There were a few uh, springs by which someone could gather water and survive. But it was not a place of normal hab habitation. And yet it was there that John was being prepared to be used of the Lord at the right time. And it was, he, was, he was told that it was time to deliver this message when the word of God came to him. Now, it was this John who delivered this message. The word of God came to John and called him out of obscurity into the public eye. And God had a special mission for John. And it was one that was really predicted by the angel. When the angel appeared to Zechariah in the temple and told him that him and his wife were going to have a son, that angel already described what the mission of John, what the mission of their son was going to be. The angel said this, he said, He, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John was going to go prepare the people and he was going to turn them. He was going to bring about a turn, a change in the people. And so the Lord had indicated uh, to John, somehow, that now was the time. Now was the time to bring this message of repentance to the nation. But when was now? When was that, 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 that the word of God came to John? Well, Luke helps us by giving us some, some indicators. And so we can look here at the, the timing of, of John's message. Verses 1 and 2 tell us the timing of God, John's message. Because you see, Luke the historian roots this message that we read about, this ministry that we read about, in a specific time and place. And he does this by listing the rulers who were in power when John began his public ministry. Beginning with Caesar, who was over the whole Roman Empire, and then working his way down from there. 
The seizure at the time was Tiberius, as John tells us. Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius reigned from 14 to 37 AD, and therefore, by Luke's timestamp that he says in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that means that John the Baptist began his ministry in AD 29. AD 29. Now, while Tiberius was over in Rome reigning, there were a number of regional rulers in power in and surrounding Israel. And Luke gives us those rulers as well. He tells us first that Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. He was really just an administrative official, one who kept the peace and collected taxes. Herod the Tetrarch, also known as Herod Antipas, ruled over Galilee and Perea. Galilee being a region of northern part of Israel and Perea being on the eastern side of the Jordan. Philip says the brother of uh, the brother of Antipas is Tetrarch in the region of Iturea and Traconius. This is a uh, regions in the northern and eastern part of Israel. And then finally, we read about Lysanias, who was really an unimportant and an unknown figure. We know nothing, nothing about him, but apparently ruled in this region, Abilene, Abilene which is uh, a region northwest of Damascus. But the point is this, when, when these men held the secular power that God brought the message to, not to these secular rulers, but to a really obscure man in Israel. But on top of this, John doesn't, or Luke doesn't just give us the secular rulers, he also gives us the, the ones who held the spiritual power as well, the religious power. He says in, church, in, in chapter 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas is when the word of God came. Annas and Caiaphas are listed as occupying the high priesthood. And this is somewhat strange and presents a little bit of a problem because there's only one high priest at a time. There's not ever two high priests that occupy that position. But we know that Annas... Uh, was the, the father-in-law to Caiaphas and served in the, high the role of high priest before Caiaphas did. And so it's, it's probably best uh, to understand Annas as being listed as high priest in two ways. How can he be included here with Caiaphas if he wasn't technically the high priest at the time? First, we get from the Gospels that he still held a high position of, of authority and influence within the religious system of Israel. So even though he had previously served as high priest and he was no longer in that role, he still had an influential role. And in fact, at the end of the Gospels, we see that Annas presides over one of Jesus' mock trials, thereby showing that he still had a position of authority, that he was respected in that way. But the second way that he could be grouped here and called high priest is that it's likely that they retained their titles long after they served in that role, much like our, our presidents do in our country, that they're still called Mr. President even after uh, they've served in that role. And so here they very well held the title of high priest even though they weren't currently in that position. But the point here is this, that while all these men held the secular and religious positions of power and prominence, the word of God did not come to any of them. They were not the, the chosen ones, the special ones that God brought the word of God. He sent his word to someone else that he chose, again showing that God's ways are not our ways. He doesn't always go to the most prominent. He goes to the ones that he has chosen. And this was to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, so we've seen the timing of John's message. Let's look now at the content of John's message in verse 3. What was the content of this shocking message? What was it that he burst on the scene and began preaching? Verse 3 tells us. It says, He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now water is a precious commodity in Israel, and so it makes sense that if he's going to begin a baptismal ministry, that he would go to a place where there's a reliable source of water, thereby went to the, the region around the Jordan or the Jordan River. 
And it's here that he began to proclaim his message and, and people began going out to him because this was a, away from the main uh, metropolises, away from the main cities where people lived. They would be going out to this wilderness area to see John and to hear his message. He, the text tells us that he proclaimed the necessity of repentance for Israel to receive the forgiveness of God for their sins. It's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The word repentance here comes from the Greek word metanoia, and it means a change of mind or a turning. In our common language, we might talk about it as a 180, a 180-degree turn, going one direction, turning a completely opposite direction. It involved the changing direction of one's beliefs, the changing directions of one's thoughts, and perspective, and the changing direction of one's actions and behavior. Repentance is a turning away from sin and turning toward God. And John begins preaching this to the Israelites. And this is precisely why John's message was so revolutionary. He, being God's prophet, was telling God's chosen people that they were distant from God. Again, remember that Israel here thinks that, that they hold the privileged status, that they are not in any need of, of revolution or of reformation, that in the eyes, if they surveyed the world, that they were God's chosen people, that they were okay, that they were close to God. They had the temple. They offered the sacrifices. They were doing what God required in the law, not all those Gentile nations. And yet, John comes and says, come down into the water. Come and repent of your sin. Come receive forgiveness. Thereby indicating that they currently didn't have forgiveness. That they currently were not forgiven of their sin. That there was a certain kind of distance from God, a certain kind of rebellion, a certain sin that they had that they needed to be cleansed of. And this would have been revolutionary. John tells them that they need to return to the Lord. And you can imagine some of them saying, return to the Lord? We are the Lord's people. What do you mean return to the Lord? But he made it clear that even though they'd been keeping the, the, the sacrifices and the carrying on of the religious system, that there was still a need for forgiveness of sins. They, John told them, were performing external rituals, but they needed internal renewal. And this poke in the eye to the religious religiously arrogant Jews continued with this call to baptism. In other words, he didn't just say, you need to repent and leave it at that. He says, you need to repent and you need to be baptized to show your repentance. And that would have continued to drive the dagger in deeper. The reason for it is this. You see, the Old Testament called for ritual cleansing, that they would go down into these mikvahs, these pools, these, to be ritually cleansed before certain ceremonies and whatnot. And on top of this, they're also developed within Judaism the practice of baptizing Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. The proselytes, the Gentiles who wanted to become Jews, would have to go through a, a, a ritual that included a baptism. And so this baptism, which is, was a, would be a full immersion of the body under the water to show that they've been cleansed and that they are starting anew, John took this baptism of proselytes and he infuses it with new meaning and applies it to the Jews of his day. In other words, he calls the Jews to come down into the water as if they are Gentiles. He calls them to come down into the, the water and admit that they're unclean, that they need a change to take place. And again, you can imagine how that would cut at the pride of the Jews. Wait, they're the sinners? Wait, they're the ones who need to be cleansed? They're the ones who need to repent? We've got to be treated like Gentiles? I thought we were God's chosen people. But John preaches this message boldly. Now this baptism was not a religious work in which they earned their salvation. 
This was not a, a thing where he was calling them to try to earn the approval of God and, and to get God to be happy with you if you just do this one, this one thing. It's not a religious hoop to go through. Because for them to walk down into that water and be baptized by John and to repent of their sin, it represented an internal faith in God. A trusting in His forgiveness, a recognition that they were sinners, that they were unclean, and that the only way was to turn back to God and to trust in Him and thereby display, to manifest, to, to, uh, to, to show evidence the fact that they had truly repented, that they were letting go of their sin and they were turning back to the Lord through this activity of baptism. And so, if we put ourselves in the shoes of a, of, a, of, a, of a Jewish man who had heard about John the Baptist and he's come to the banks of the Jordan River and he's, he's listening to John preach this message and then he decides, I need that baptism. I need to go down into that water. What would be going, into his head? What would be going on in his head and in his heart? Well, first of all, he would be confessing his sin. He would be recognizing and admitting that he is not right in his standing with his Creator. That even though he's been doing the religious rituals, even though he's a, a Jew by ancestry, he is not right with God. That his sin stood between him and God and that he needed forgiveness. He needed that sin to be getting out of the way. He needed God to remove that sin from him. And so he would be confessing his sin as he walked down into that water. But he'd also be confessing his inability to cleanse himself. He'd be recognizing that, that he could not cleanse himself, that if he stayed on that bank, that he could not uh, get that forgiveness removed, that he needed God to do it. And so he's going to walk obediently and, have, and walk into that water. But he'd also be confessing his faith in God. That as, I, as he went down to that water, he'd be saying, only God can give me forgiveness. Only by turning to the Lord Am I, is my heart able to be cleansed and my sin forgiven? And fourthly, he would be showing the turning that's taken place in his heart. He would be evidencing the fact that he has done a 180 in his heart, away from his self-righteousness towards trusting in the righteousness given to him by God. Now this message that John preached was to prepare them for the Messiah. This message, all this, this repentance that he was calling Israel to do was to get them ready for Jesus. Because you see, his role was that of a forerunner. He was to be the one who would go out before the king and to, and to let the people know that the king is coming and to, to clear the way and to make it an easy path for the king to walk through and for his subjects to be able to see and to hear the king. And Luke makes it clear that this is what John was supposed to do by quoting Isaiah. And so we've seen the timing of John's message and the content. Let's look thirdly here how John's message fulfilled prophecy. How John's message fulfilled prophecy in verses 4 through 6. It says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You see, as John arrived, preparing the way for the Messiah, he was fulfilling the prophecy given in Isaiah 40. Now, while Isaiah 40 is quoted in, 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 in the other gospel writers as well, but Luke includes the longest quotation. He, he prolongs, he, he brings in the most words from Isaiah 40 of any of the gospel writers. And what do we see in what Luke has quoted here? What is it about this text that reveals something about John's mission? Well, first, it identifies that there's a preacher from the wilderness, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But secondly, it identifies his role to prepare the way for the Lord. The voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. He has a role and that is to cry out, to preach from the wilderness and to prepare the way for the Messiah. Thirdly, it this passage describes the smoothing out of the Lord's way. 
the valleys being filled, the mountain and hills, hills being made low, the crooked ways being straight. All the obstacles are to be removed. And fourthly, it describes the result of all flesh seeing God's salvation. And so when John came crying in the wilderness, calling people to prepare for the Lord, who would come in the person of the Messiah. By the roadblocks being removed and the paths straightened, people would find the way to God clear. John was simply supposed to clear the way to make it obvious and clear how people were to, to find the Lord, how they were to make their way back to the Lord. And we know that he's going to make clear that the way to God is through the Messiah, is through Jesus of Nazareth. And the way or path to God going through Jesus was a message that was bitterly opposed in the first century. The religious leaders wanted to hear nothing of it and ended putting Jesus on the cross to silence such claims. That no, Jesus isn't the path to God. No, he isn't the way. But we know Jesus explicitly said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And because of this, You'll remember the early Christians called themselves the way. They called themselves the way because they took their cues from Isaiah's passage and the claims of Jesus and they knew that the only path that led to God was through Jesus. And that was the only path to salvation. And therefore they could say we are on the way. Now we know that Jesus brought salvation and many uh, brought salvation, and many in Israel repented of their sins and confessed Him as Lord. They experienced the salvation of God talked about in verse 6. But the prophecy says that all the flesh shall see salvation. And we know that that hasn't taken place yet. It's something that is, we still await the day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as water covers the sea. But Luke indicates, or includes this last line here, I believe, because he wants to drive home the point that Jesus is Savior for all. Jesus is Savior for all. And this is what we've said is the, the, really the theme of the book of Luke, is that Luke is constantly presenting Jesus as a Savior for all. That for Jews and for Gentiles alike, Jesus is the only Savior. And Luke is making that clear even in his citation of Isaiah 40 here. Now the other Gospels tell us that scores of people were coming out to see John. He was tremendously popular. His message, while shocking and convicting, also struck a chord. People realized that this was truth. This was God's prophet. And remember, God had been silent for 400 years. They had not heard from a prophet of God. And so to hear that there was one out in the wilderness who was speaking on behalf of the Lord had to uh, elicit such great excitement. People were waiting for the Messiah to come. They, they were hearing rumors that the Messiah was here or was coming soon. And no doubt that excitement helped draw people to go out and to hear John. They knew that God was doing a new thing. And so in order, for to be, in order to be ready to receive Jesus of Nazareth, Israel needed to hear that in order for them to be right with God, they needed to repent of their sins. Divine forgiveness was only available to the penitent. Divine forgiveness was only available to those who would truly repent. And that's what John called the crowds to. That's what John called these Jews of the first century to, that they would come down into the waters of baptism and repent of their sin, leaving their old way behind and saying, I want forgiveness of sins and therefore I will repent. I will leave them behind. And friends, the same is true today. That repentance is required for divine forgiveness today just as much as it was in John's day. Repentance is required to receive divine forgiveness. You will not be 
a forgiven saint unless you are first a repentant sinner. J.C. Ryle, the pastor of the 1800s, said this. He said, saved souls are always penitent souls. Saved souls are always penitent souls. Those who have experienced the salvation of God are those who have come humbly on their knees confessing their sin before the Lord. And yet, many today do not want to hear repentance. They want reform without repentance. They want salvation without sacrifice. And in fact, today, I believe people are more desiring personal improvement than they are divine salvation and forgiveness. People want to be better people. They want to change something in their life. They want new habits. They want, they want to be seen as better. But they aren't convinced that they need to be reconciled. They, yeah, they, they want to do better things, but they aren't convinced that they need to be reconciled with their Creator. They don't realize that there are sins that stand in the way between them and God. And so repentance is, is unnecessary. Repentance is, is not needed if there's no sin that's recognized. They think that they simply need to be a better person. They need to adopt some new habits. They need to stop doing these destructive behaviors. They need to start doing some constructive ones. And that's their idea of reform. That's their idea of personal improvement. But friends, we know the Bible tells us that there is sin that stands in the way between us and our God. That we are in need of reconciliation. We are in need of of being reconciled to our God. And so we know that we as sinners, as people, are naturally repulsed by repentance. We don't want to be told that we have to change. We just want a better us. We just want to simply keep going up and up and up and be better and better and better without having to go down to our knees, without having to confess our sin, without having to admit that we are sinners. Because the heart of stone doesn't want to bow in humility and contrition before a holy God. Our pride doesn't want to admit that we need, uh, that we don't just need a new coat of paint. We are a structure that is rotted to the core and it needs to be torn down before it can be rebuilt by the Lord. We don't want to have to admit that. We want to say that we've got something that's good in us. We want to say there's something that's, that's salvageable. But the Bible's clear that we are rotten to the core. There's nothing, nothing salvageable in us. We need everything that we need, everything that needs to be good in us will be given by a gift, not anything pulled out of us. The Bible says there's none who are good, no, not one. And friends, I think that even in the Christian church, as we talk about changing our lives and changing behavior and, and looking to be different people and looking to be, obey the Bible better, we can, we can easily adopt this modern idea that avoids repentance. We think that if I just read the right verses and change some behaviors and try harder and do better, that I'll have a different life and God will be more pleased with me and things will just keep getting better. There'll be a, this path of self-improvement. But folks, we need to get repentance right. We need to realize that repentance factors in to our change. We will not be going up and up. Our character will not be more and more Christ-like unless we first go down to our knees. Unless we first go through repentance. The path of divine forgiveness, the path of change in our lives is through the doorway of repentance. If re repentance is the entry gate to salvation, we must get repentance right. We must get it right for our children's sake. If we're going to lead our children to salvation and God, then we must lead them to the gate of repentance and teach them what it means to humble ourselves and confess our sin before God. If we're going to proclaim salvation and tell a world around us that's dying, that needs to know about salvation, they need to know how they can have salvation in Jesus, they need to know that it's, 
It's, it's received through the, the gateway of, of repentance. We can't leave that out. Our friends, our neighbors, our family members need to know about repentance. And likewise, repentance is to characterize the life of the believer. We never go a day in which there is some sin that we, that we, uh, we never go a day in which there's not some sin that we need to repent of. Even though we are redeemed, even though we are new creations in Christ, we still have the old man within us. You know that to be true, beloved. You know that there is, there is sin that still sits within your soul. And we must repent of that and confess it to God. We need to get repentance right in order for our walk with God to be healthy. So what is repentance? What is it really? John talks about it. The Jews participated in it. But what is it? If it's required for divine forgiveness, we need to know what it is. And we're going to get some help this morning from the Puritan Thomas Watson. He has a little book called The Doctrine of Repentance. I recommend it to you. Again, it's little, it's short. And even though he wrote it hundreds of years ago, it is just as insightful and just as poignant today as it was then. And in that book, he lists six ingredients of biblical repentance. Six ingredients. And I want to give these to you this morning briefly to help us understand what is repentance so that we might be able to manifest it in our lives. The first ingredient he gives for what is included in biblical repentance is the sight of sin. The sight of sin. Watson says this, Where there is no sight of sin, there can be no repentance. Sin must first be seen before it can be wept for. Sin must first be seen before it can be wept for. It's easy, we know, to spot sin in others. But repentance requires that we see it in ourselves. We can easily be so self-deceived that we don't see the sin in our lives, that we go through our days and we, and we manifest that sin, we wear it on our sleeve, and the people around us see it so well, but we sin deceives. So it's a disease that we don't even know we have. And we as modern people are knowledgeable about a great many things, and yet we can be ignorant about our own hearts. And so if we are to practice biblical repentance, we must see sin clearly. We must get it locked within our gaze, locked within our scope, so that we can repent of it. But as I'm sure the case is for you, sometimes for me it's, uh, Lord, I don't know what sin is in my heart. I, I, I'm not seeing some sin bubbling to the surface, and yet I know that I'm, I'm wretched. I know that I'm selfish, and I know that there is sin somewhere. Please show it to me. And so we must ask God to reveal it to us. Like David did in Psalm 139 where he prays, Search me, O God, and, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. We must have this, this pleading with God every day that, God, please show me my sin. Now you might say, that's, that's crazy. Are you asking God to show you sin? But if we want repentance and if we want to, to walk more faithfully with Christ... And we must want to be able to see that dross rise to the surface so we can scrape it off and get it out of our lives. If we want to be healthy, we've got to cut out the cancer. We've got to eradicate the disease. And we can't eradicate it if we don't see it. We ask God to reveal it to us. We ask godly people to point it out to us. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We want our friends, our loved ones, our spouses to give us love by rebuking us, by showing us our sin in love. Proverbs 27, 5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. We need that rebuke. And once we see it, friends, we must define it biblically. We must define our sin biblically, we, which means this. We need to label our sin as the Bible labels it. You see, it's our tendency for when we see sin or we see issues in our lives that we can call it other names, 
that we call it things that maybe our society calls it, and we don't end up putting it right within the crosshairs of what the Bible says. For example, what the Bible calls anger, we can call frustration. I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. Well, if you just call it frustration, then when you go to the Bible and look for what does the Bible say about frustration, you're not going to find very many verses. But if you realize that your frustration is really coming from a heart of anger, well then there's so much that the, the remedy of the Bible can now target that sin and help you to root it out. Or what the Bible calls laziness. Maybe we just call rest. Oh, I'm just resting right now. Oh, I'm resting. I'll get to that later. I've had a hard week. Is it really rest or is it laziness? Again, if we don't call, label our sin biblically, we're not going to be able to apply the artillery of the Word of God directly upon on it. What the Bible calls anxiety, maybe we call stress or concern. Oh, I'm not, I'm not anxious about it. I'm just concerned. Or I'm not anxious. I'm just stressed out at the moment. Again, if we use other labels other than the Bible, we can't deal with it. If we do not label our sin as God labels it, then the scalpel can miss the cancer. We can miss repentance altogether and thus miss the life-giving balm of Christ upon our hearts if we do not see it for what it is and call it for what the Bible calls it. So the first ingredient of repentance is the sight of sin. The second ingredient is sorrow for sin. Once we see our sin, we must weep for it. We cannot be joyful about it. It must break our hearts. Our hearts must be sad over the sin that we have committed. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that there is worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, which puts us on notice that there is a way to be sorrowful over sin that isn't true, genuine sorrow. We can all be actors when it comes to sin. We can, we can, tears can come for multiple reasons. I mean, how many people are there that have had moments of great sadness and moments of great weeping over a certain sin or a certain event, and yet today do not walk with the Lord? It was, there was no lasting impression. There was tears over the event, but not tears that struck to the soul to enable the sin to be rooted out. A truly repentant heart is sorrowful for sins, not just the consequences of sins. He says, Watson, again, he says, A man may be sorrow, sorry and yet not repent, as a thief is sorry when he is taken, not because he stole, but because he has to pay the penalty. He's sorry just because of the consequences. But true sorrow comes from assessing our sins before a holy God. David, who could have been sorrowful for the way that he ruined a family by sleeping with the woman, killing the man, but his confession before God was, before you and you only have I sinned. He recognized that his, his sorrow was over the fact that he had sinned against God, first and foremost. Watson again says, Godly sorrow is chiefly for the trespass against God, so that even if there are, were no consequences to smite, conscience to smite, no devil to accuse, no hell to punish, yet the soul would still be grieved because of the prejudice done to God. It is not necessary, necessary that tears always accompany our repentance and our sorrow, but it is that our heart must be sorrowful over our sin. So there must be a sight of sin, a sorrow for sin. Third, third ingredient, confession for sin. There must be confession for sin. The path of repentance leads from sorrow to confession. We, confession is us standing before God and admitting, and, and admitting God's indictment of us. We accuse ourselves. We agree with God over our sins. We say, Lord, I have sinned. Indeed, it is true. I do not deny it. Our confession must be offered up freely. It, it, it is not to be forced. Our confession must be sincere, having our hearts aligned with our, our words. We cannot just say the right words, but our hearts must be truly in alignment with our lips. Our confession must be specific. It's easy to confess general things, but we must address specific sins. Watson says, As it is with a wounded man who comes to a surgeon and shows him all his wounds, here is, the, I was cut in the head, there I was shot in the arm. So a mournful sinner 
confesses the several diseases of the soul. We go specifically before God. Lord, I have sinned in this way. I said these things. My pride was manifested in this way. My anger was in this way. We must be clear about the sins we're confessing. And therefore, it must be complete. We can't only confess some sins and not other sins. We can't simply confess surface sins and not the deep ones. We must confess it all. And as we confess our sins, as we go before God and confess them to the Lord, Christ becomes sweet to us. Because we, as we say, I am a sinner, then we recognize that there's only one answer for sinner, and that's the blood of Jesus. And so as we confess our sin, Jesus becomes more sweet. And as Jesus becomes more sweet, sin becomes more despicable. Which leads us to our fourth ingredient, and that is shame for sin. There must be shame for our sin as well. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, our wrongdoing should make us want to hide. We should recognize, I, I have done something wrong. I am embarrassed. I, I, there is shame in this. Watson says this, When the heart has been made black with sin, grace makes the face red with blushing. Repentance causes a holy bashfulness. Friends, we live in a society that, that doesn't believe there should be any shame for any actions that we do, that I can live however I want and there should be no shame. How dare you? Shame on you for shaming me. And yet the Bible is clear that there should be shame over sin. This is a gift of God that we would be ashamed for what we do, that we might turn away from that sin and turn towards God. There's a natural reaction in our conscience that we would be ashamed for sin. And that is right. In fact, if there is no shame for sin, for sin, that is shameful. We cannot be proud or indifferent over our transgressions. Our sins are against a holy God, and that should cause us to shrink in shame in recognizing that we have sinned against Him. Again, when the heart has been made black with sin, grace makes the face red with blushing. It is God's grace that we see shame in our repentance. But the fifth ingredient of repentance is that we continue to plunge... Uh, sorry, the fifth ingredient is that there's hatred for sin. We've seen sight of sin. We've seen, uh, we've seen the sight of sin. We've seen the sorrow for sin. We've seen confession of sin, shame for sin, and fifthly, hatred for sin. We must continue to plunge deeper into our hearts. We see the sin, we confess it, we're sorrowful for it, there's a shame in it. We've got to turn and hate the sin. We've got to despise the sin. Repentance must include this. It isn't enough just to be sorry for it. It isn't enough just to confess it. It isn't enough just to feel bad about it. We must seek to hate and loathe the sin itself. I mean, what, what repentance is it if we confess it and we're sorrowful for it and yet we still secretly love the sin? Is that truly repentance? Is that turning away from the sin? If we've turned our face but our heart is still attached? Watson says, a true penitent is a sin loather. He says, just like when hate, when we, uh, uh, just like when we hate a certain food, that makes our stomach sick, so we should loathe that which makes our conscience sick. That which makes us in inner turmoil over our sin, we should hate that. Just like when we eat something bad and it causes our, causes our stomach to be sick and we, we don't want to touch that food ever again, so we should not want to touch that sin ever again. You see, we have not truly turned from our sin if we still love it, if it still has a, 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 a pull upon our hearts if we secretly desire it. Repentance has not happened if we secretly still desire that sin. Watson says, Christ is never loved till sin be loathed. Heaven is never longed for till sin be loathed. We know we hate our sin when we are tempted towards that sin, but we are instead of desiring it, we are now disgusted by it. And it doesn't matter how good the temptation looks. We want nothing to do with it. 
That's when we loathe and despise the sin and hate it. Watson puts this great analogy. He says, suppose a dish be finely cooked and the sauce be good. You can imagine maybe your favorite dish and gravy or some sauce on it. Yet, if a man has an antipathy against the meat, he will not taste it. Think of uh, here in America, we do not think that dogs are food. <laughs> Other parts of the world do. But here in America, if you say, here's our dog for dinner, I doubt there is uh, one in a hundred that would want to eat that. And so he's saying that, that even though there might be, it might be barbecued just great and have the perfect sauces on it, it's dog meat. We're not going to eat it. And here's his point. So let the devil cook and dress sin with pleasure and profit, and yet a true penitent with a secret abhorrence of it is disgusted by it and will not meddle with it. The devil can make that sin look as good as he can, but the person who's truly repented by God's grace will have a true hatred for that sin and not want to touch it. Now, we have one more ingredient of repentance to cover. But before we get there, I want to pull the car over here because it's easy as we go over all these things that our repentance needs to, needs to have shame and sorrow and hatred and all these things that if you're like me, it can feel like, man, I don't know if my repentance has even been good. In other words, I know I've got to repent of my sin, but then I come to repent and I've got to have all these things in there. I don't even think my repentance is good, so then I need to start all over and repent of my repenting. And it's this vicious cycle. And as we, we struggle to come up with what's needed, we might agree with all of this and say, yes, there needs to be sorrow. Yes, there needs to be hatred. Yes, there needs to be sin, uh, shame. But God, I, just, I don't feel the sorrow I need to feel. I don't feel the hatred I need to feel. There's still a little bit of tinge and desire for that sin. We struggle to to have what God calls for in this repentance. But dear believer, we cannot forget the gospel even in our repenting. God is gracious to sinners. He's gracious and he is here to help. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. His mercy is great even for us in the midst of our repentance. In fact, I want to encourage you with a, a quote from the late uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul. He was at a conference asked about repentance and contrition and sorrow over, over sin. He's a great stalwart of the faith, but he says this. He said, what repentance always requires is confession of our sin before God and confession accompanied by contrition, by real remorse. But then he says this. He says, I have never in my life approached the full measure of remorse and contrition for my sin that I should have. Let me say that again. He says, I have never in my life approached the full measure of remorse and contrition for my sin that I should have. I also know that that is true of you. He, he says, Thomas Akempis, uh, uh, an author from the Middle Ages, said that the greatest saints rarely come anywhere close to feeling the me full measure of weight of their own sinfulness. And Sproul says this, I'm glad the Holy Spirit reveals the depths of my sin gradually to me. If he were to reveal to me right now the full measure of my guilt before God, I would be destroyed. Like Isaiah, who had saw a vision of God and said that he was undone. He was coming apart. And so, yes, we must confess with true sorrow, but we must remember, quoting Isaiah, uh, Psalm 51, that a broken and contrite heart God does not despise. God loves to see us come humbly before him. And so, friends, if we are to have these ingredients in our repentance, let us not place them before us as more uh, steps in the ladder that we, or steps on the stairs that we need to climb in order to get to God. And that we cannot know peace with God until we climb these stairs, until we conjure up enough sorrow, and until we conjure up enough hatred of sin. No, even in our repenting, even in our confessing, we go to God and we cry out for help. We recognize that we are in need of help. You see, repentance 
is a gift. Repentance is not produced by us. It's produced by God. We are sinners on our own. Our hearts are stony, cold, and we cannot produce repentance. We cannot turn ourselves back to God without His help. And so because repentance is a gift, that means two things. Number one, that we must ask God to grant it. That our prayers must include asking God to give us these things. Father, I see this sin. Help me to repent of it truly. Give me a sorrow for it. Give me a hatred of the sin. Give me true confession. We must ask him to do this. But the second thing it means is that we can take no credit or pride in our repentance. It's not something that we do to earn forgiveness. We never earn forgiveness with God. That is a false gospel, a damning gospel. That is a a gospel of works. We have a gospel of free grace in which it is all a gift. And that means we can take no credit for it. As Bishop J.C. Ryle said, no repentance can make atonement for sin. The blood of Christ and nothing else can wash away sin from man's soul. We do not trust in our repentance. We trust in the blood of Christ. And he will receive all the glory. But finally, the final ingredient that Watson gives us is number six, a turning from sin. A turning from sin. All those other ingredients are this internal heart position and and a prayer to God. And then finally it results in action. That we turn. We turn away from sin and we turn towards God. It's a two-part action. Two sides of the same coin. In the first action, we, we put off the old man. The Bible describes it as like taking off a coat. It's a very vivid word. If you can imagine a coat that is so foul stench that it hasn't been washed in in many years and just reeks, and and how quickly would you want to take that off? And you would never want to pick it up again. You know that no matter how many times it's washed, it's not going to smell good again. And so you take that off and you leave it behind. And that's exactly what we need to do with our sin. We take it off, we forsake it. We need to put it to death. But secondly, we, we turn away from sin to God. Paul says in Acts 26, 20, that he preached a message in which he called people to repent and turn to God. Repentance is not complete until we've latched onto Christ, until we've trusted in him, until we've changed our behavior, until there's a noticeable difference. If there's no difference in our lives, then repentance is not complete. If the actions and behavior continues on, then there has been no repentance. It doesn't matter how much you've cried over that sin. It doesn't matter how much you've expressed remorse over that sin. If you continue to do it, you haven't repented of it. Now, the Christian life is one of direction, not perfection. There is often lots of backsliding that we all find ourselves repeating sins over and over again, and God's grace covers all of that. The blood of Christ is sufficient to cover every single sin, no matter how many times it's repeated. But we must be pushing for full repentance of sin, a full repudiation, a full eradication of sin out of our lives. And when we see sin pop up again, we repent of it again. We go to God again. And so let me close here by asking a few questions. Have you ever truly repented? Some of you hearing and listening to this this morning may have been around Christian teaching, may have heard a lot of good stuff, but I ask you before the Lord, have you ever repented? Have you ever gone through these steps? Have you ever had a true hatred and shame and sorrow for sin? Have you ever turned away from sin? Have you ever come humbly before God, confessing your wretchedness before Him? Have you ever said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? Because you see, forgiveness of sins and salvation in God and and the guarantee of heaven is only possible through the gateway of repentance. And so you must repent. There is no other option. There is no other way to God but through repentance, through the confession of sin, the turning away of that sin.
Or maybe some of you have simply tried to add Jesus to your life. You, you have carried on with what you want to do, but you've kind of tried to add some religion in. You go to church, you, you maybe read the Bible here or there, maybe you listen to some Christian music or whatever, but you've simply added Jesus to your life. Remember, simply adding Jesus to your life is not repentance, and salvation is only found through the gateway of repentance. You cannot turn to God without turning away from your sin. You can't keep going the way that you want to go and add Jesus to that because, you see, going the way of Jesus is in completely the opposite direction. And you can't go both ways at the same time. You can't walk east and west at the same time. You have to choose one way. Or maybe you're listening to this morning and you thought you repented. There's some moment in your life in which you were really uh, remorseful over certain sin. But if you're honest with yourself, today you feel no remorse over your sin. You don't really care how you're living. Then let me suggest to you that maybe you've never truly repented. Maybe you've never really given your life to Christ. You've never let go of your sin and turned to Christ. Or maybe you've turned back to your sin to love it. But let me tell you that when you've truly repented, it stays with you. It abides and you'll still hate that sin years later. If you know today that you are still in your sin, then I exhort you on the authority of the Word of God that you repent of your sin today, that you get on your knees and confess before God that you have sinned, that you have rebelled against Him. May ask Him that He would give you a sorrow and a remorse for your sin, that you would put it behind you, that today would be the day of your repentance that today you would take off that sin and you would leave it behind, never to pick it up again. That you would ask God that today you, He would give you such a distaste for that sin that you would never want to return to it again. Don't wait until tomorrow. Tomorrow might be the day of your death. You don't know. Let today be the day of your repenting. Let today be the day of your salvation. Look to Jesus. He offers Himself to you today, right now. You know He has been patient with you so that you might hear this word, that you might hear this offer of hope, that today if you repent, you, need, you simply need to renounce yourself. Trust in Jesus and His sacrifice upon the cross, that His payment for you was sufficient. And through that, find forgiveness. And your sins will be forgiven forevermore. God says He casts them into the heart of the sea, never to be pulled up again. You can know that hope and that peace with God, that reconciliation, if you would but repent. Believer, we know, as we've said, that even though our lives are transformed, sin still remains in us. And we are at war with our sin our entire lives. But I think we can get easily lulled into not fighting every single day. And yet that's exactly what this text should remind us of, that repentance is necessary it's a continual thing in the life of the believer because we are unholy and God is holy. Every day we confess our sins knowing that they are many, but we know and we confess that His mercy is more. Every day we grow in our dis disgust of our sin and in our delight in our salvation. Every day we live in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the, as the a hymn writer said, we're a debtor to grace. Every day we grow deeper and deeper in debt to grace because we draw and pull from that grace that God gives us. Grace to see our sin, grace to repent of our sin, and grace to live obedient lives. And so let us remember at the end of the day, our confidence and our faith does not rest in our repentance, however strong or however sincere that is, because that is shifting sand. Our faith rests in Christ, that He has saved us, that He is our salvation, that He has rescued us. When we get before the gates of heaven, we know that our plea to get us in is not that we've repented sincerely enough or that we had enough sorrow for sin or any of that, but simply, I've trusted Jesus and His righteousness, His blood is sufficient for me. And so, rest in Christ, church, let us strive to have our lives marked by continual repentance so that we might know the joy of divine forgiveness each and every day. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for the salvation given through your Son. 
I pray for each one of us that you would lead us in the path of repentance that we must tread. I pray for each heart, each person listening to this message that you might reveal to them their sin. Father, where is the path of repentance that you're calling them to walk upon? And may you bring them to their knees that in humble confession of their sin, they might find life in Jesus' name. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Go in peace, beloved.